Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we conclude our series in Exodus, A Desert Experience, with a message titled Consuming Fire. So let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus 20, verses 18 to 26, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. There was a moment in the life of the patriarch Jacob in which everything changed. Indeed, that moment was so significant that God himself had taken the initiative to change the patriarch's name. Genesis 32:28 has God saying, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. And so from that time on, the descendants of Jacob were called by their father's new name, Israel. But what was the significance of that? Well, the event that led to the name change happened on the evening of what was shaping out to be a terrifying next day. Jacob was returning from Padan Aram, and he was going home. He fled from home in the first place because he had deceived his brother Esau. He'd stolen his inheritance. In fact, up to that moment, it becomes clear from reading Genesis that Jacob is not God's man at all. But he does encounter God at a place called Luz, which later gets renamed as Bethel. There, he has an encounter with the one true God. In consequence, Jacob then says, if, and by the way, that's the operative word, if, if God will be with me and will keep me, and if he will give me bread to eat, and if he'll give me clothing to wear, and if he provides me an opportunity to come home safely, if all those ifs come to pass, then, and that's also an operative word, then he says, the Lord will be my God. See, Jacob was cheeky and arrogant. He was a cheat, a liar, a deceitful man, and he thinks he can make deals with God. And the amazing thing about that account is that God is so gracious that he didn't consume Jacob. But now it's many years later, and Jacob was going home. And then he receives a word, by tomorrow your brother Esau will be upon you, and he's coming your way, and he has with him 400 trained and armed fighting men. And so that night, the night before Esau arrives, Jacob sends his family ahead, and he's left on the banks of the Jabbok River. And Jacob, as we might expect, begins to pray. O God of my father Isaac, the God of my grandfather Abraham, he prays. And then what he prays next gives insight into something that's going on inside of him. He says, I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of love you have poured out on me. He's saying, I'm unworthy of you, and yet you've had mercy on me. And then amazingly, a man appears to him. And how it happened, we're not told. But we are told that they ended up wrestling together, a wrestling match that consumed the entire night all the way to the breaking of the day. No, it wasn't a boxing match. It was a match in which the two men gripped each other and Jacob wouldn't let go even while he was being beaten. And so seeing that Jacob wouldn't let go, the man touches Jacob's hip socket and the hip socket is disjointed. And in pain and unable to go on without a severe limp, Jacob is still hanging on. And the man says, let me go. And Jacob says, no, I won't do it. No matter the pain, no matter what else you do to me, I won't let you go before you bless me. And so the man says, very well, I'll do that. What's your name? And Jacob responds, it's Jacob. And the man says, no longer so. I'm changing your name this day. From now on, your name is going to be Israel. What does that mean? Well, the man tells him, you've striven with God and with men, and you've prevailed. What? Has Jacob been wrestling with God all night? Indeed, he has. This is one of those places in the First Testament where we have a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. He's prefigured as a man in anticipation of his coming to earth as a man later. 
Here's what Jacob is told. You've wrestled with God, the Son of God, and you've prevailed. You wouldn't let go of him. You clung to him. You held close to him, regardless of how painful it became, until he blessed your life. And that's what Israel means. He wrestles with God. It means no matter how difficult things become, Israel will never let go of God. And in truth, we'll find out that God will never let go of Israel. Israel and God are destined to wrestle until the very end of time when Jesus comes again and establishes millennial kingdom. And Paul tells us in Romans 11:26 that then all Israel will be saved. I take that to mean that the wrestling will not end until during the millennium. Israel, whom the prophet Ezekiel called that rebellious house, they will then turn to their Messiah, the one whom they've pierced. They'll mourn deeply for their sins and turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. Ah, but I fear I've gone on and on for too long. I'm wanting to take us to the place of Mount Sinai where Israel has just received the Ten Commandments. The commandments of God were spoken verbally from the top of the mountain. The mountain was covered with smoke. God's glory appeared in great fire. The ground was trembling. God spoke. He gave them the Ten Commandments, his law, a revelation of what righteousness looks like, and the standard that he demands of his people. Now let's read Exodus 20, 18 to 21. Now when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off, and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. See, hearing God speak in an audible voice was a terrifying experience for them. Somehow, Moses had been able to endure that voice, but the rest of the people were not able to do so. And I assume the reason Moses wasn't driven to the point of paralyzing fear is because he had been given a special dispensation of grace that sustained him. But without that special sustaining grace, the fear that ran through the nation might have been their destruction. I mean, just who was the God that brought us out of Egypt? Just how terrifying and overwhelming is he? The thunder, the lightning, the mountain raging with a fire that made it appear as a furnace, fire going up as far as the human eye could see, and the voice, the voice that threatened to tear body and soul apart. Look, say the leaders of the nation, Moses, if God gives you grace to stand before him, we're grateful for that, but please serve as our intermediary. We can't bear up under the full weight of the glory of God. No human being can. And now, please, listener, don't pass over this quickly. The presence of God is the undoing of a sinful people. And my dear listener, hear me. If you don't think so, I say to you, you've never worshipped the one true God. If you don't think God is to be feared, you're worshipping an idol. God cannot abide to have sin in his presence. He's too holy for the likes of you and me. Indeed, my dear sinner friend, the closer you get to God, the more difficult it may seem to be able to survive. Who walks toward a nuclear blast? To do so would to hold one's life in contempt. And so Moses speaks, he tells them, look, it's a very good thing that you're terrified of God. The Lord has come, says Moses, to test you. And we might say the revelation of the splendor of God is meant to expose what's truly in the hearts of the people of the nation. What God wants is that their hearts should always think of him. The very first thing that comes into their mind when they encounter anything 
is the glory of God and to whom they belong. They're his people. They're his nation. They're a people belonging to the God who is infinite in holiness and splendor. They're the people not who have seen God, but they have seen his glory. And that marks them as different from all other people, but also changes their perspective of everything. God has come to test you, says Moses, so that the fear of the Lord may be before you, always in front of your eyes, always through which you see everything. And in this way, you won't sin. So what does that mean? And should this verse, that is Exodus 20, verse 20, that the fear of God keeps us from sinning, should that also be applied to New Testament believers? And I say that because the implication here is quite clear. You know, Israel should be afraid to disobey a holy God because to disobey him will result in condemnation. You know, many contemporary Christians today think that's simply in the First Testament. It's not for us today. They quote 1 John 4, verse 18, There is no fear in love, for perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so for perfected in love, we don't fear punishment. So let's stop and see if we can put Exodus 20, verse 20 on one side of a page and 1 John 4, 18 on the other side. Are these two verses contradictory? Let's start with 1 John 4, 18. To be perfected in the love of God is no longer to fear, not God, but punishment, says the verse. That is, if Christ has forgiven our sins, if we've repented of our sins and have thrown ourselves unreservedly upon God for mercy, don't fear, you won't be punished. But what should happen if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received a knowledge of the truth? What if rather than being perfected in love, we carry on in the self-indulgences of the sinful nature and keep breaking the Ten Commandments? Consider then what our beloved New Testament says. And here I'm reading Hebrews 10, 26 to 29. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? God commanded us to honor our mother and father. And this month, we take a little extra time to celebrate our mothers. We hope you'll join us in reflecting on the immeasurable impact that mothers have made in our lives and how their love and sacrifice mirrors the heart of our Heavenly Father. So whether you're a mom yourself or want to honor the mothers in your life, let's give thanks for the gift of motherhood and express our appreciation for those who have shaped our lives in so many countless ways. We'd also like to express our appreciation in a practical way. So this month, we have a very special resource called Restored, a story of lives made full. It's based on the book of Ruth, and we'd like to send you a copy as our gift. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca to request your free copy today. And thanks, Mom. The evidence in both the Old and New Testament is plain. We sin with impunity, 
If we do not bend the knee and call him Lord, if we do not, in all things, seek to do his will rather than our own, the glorious God will judge his people and inflict vengeance upon them. Don't water this down. Let's not say that fearing God is only a matter of just honoring him. Let's say it the way we find it in both Testaments. We need to be afraid of the consequences that would come from a holy God if we continue to offend in non-repentant sin. And for this reason, let me give counsel. Make a practice of confessing your sins. Make a practice of renouncing your sins. Make a practice of telling the Holy Spirit that you need his power to live the holy life. Ask for him to come afresh and fill you with power and holiness. And remember, would you, Hebrews 10, 30 to 31. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I'll come back to that theme, but for now, let's get back to our text from Exodus. The people have been told to fear God. Moses, however, because of the dispensation of grace that was given to him, is to act as an intermediary between the people and God. And Moses is a good intermediary, albeit he is an imperfect intermediary. You know, for us today, we have a perfect intermediary. He is Christ our Lord. But again, back to Exodus. Moses climbs the mountain to be with God. And here I'm reading Exodus 20, verses 22 to 23. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourself that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. You know, the end of Exodus 20, after the Ten Commandments had been given, now concerns itself with the worship of the glorious God. And if Israel is to worship God rightly, They must learn things that must not be done as well as things that must be done. And the key of what must not be done is repeated. It's a repetition of the first two commandments. Don't make a God to put alongside of Yahweh so that you have the Lord at the top of the pyramid and lesser gods under him. And then furthermore, don't do that, but also don't make gods of gold and silver. Israel, if they are to honor their God, must remain monotheists, and they must not try to make a beautified representation of God. They're to allow God's revelation of himself to be enough. Don't try to make something of God or add something onto God in order to make God attractive or expensive. There's a great deal here to take in. Yeah, idolatry is forbidden, but the Israelite worship might have protested. What if we make an idol more beautiful than the idols of the nations around us? Wouldn't God be pleased with that? And the answer is, stop trying to beautify God according to human standards. Content yourself with God's self-disclosure. Hold fast to what God has said about himself. For that God, the God of revelation, is the true and living God. All other depictions made by human beings are the sum of human imaginations. God is never pleased with that. But that does remind us that later on in Exodus 32, Israel did build a golden calf of gold, and they proclaimed this as their God. And because this is a God that doesn't frighten them like the God of Sinai, they liked him. And he looks so nice. He glints nicely in the sun. This God's manageable, but the God of Sinai can't be controlled, and he does make demands on the people. How quickly, once the incident of the giving of the Ten Commandments and hearing of the voice of God is behind them, the people quickly forget 
and they sin. Now let's move forward in our text. I'm now at verses 24 to 26. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness not be exposed on it. The rest of Exodus, as well as Leviticus, will be dedicated to worship. Worship is the first response of anyone who seeks to be faithful. We worship because this is the first and the most important response of being in the presence of God. But we don't worship on our terms. God dictates how he is to be worshipped. In Exodus 20, it's still very early on in the instructions regarding worship. But we know that altars were a part of worship, going all the way back to the beginning of the human story. Genesis 4, we read that both Cain and Abel bring offerings to the Lord. Although an altar isn't mentioned there, we have to assume that this was done on an altar. After Noah emerges from the ark, Genesis 8, verse 20, tells us he built an altar to the Lord and sacrificed some of the clean animals that were with him on the ark. And then in Genesis 12, verse 7, it tells us that when Abram first entered into Canaan, the land that God had promised him, one of the first acts that he does is to build an altar to the Lord. So it goes. Altars are places of worship. Sacrifices are offered there as well as prayers. But here's the key. Pagans also had altars to their gods. And if it's actually true, and it is, that the God of Israel has no rivals or equals, then it must also be true that the way in which Israel worships must be unique, and that includes their altars. Now, for undiscerning, we might think, well, since Israel's God is greater than all the gods, then they should build an altar that's larger and more imposing and more ornate than all the other altars that are out there. But clearly, those are not the instructions about the altar. Notice that Israel's permitted to make both an altar of earth as well as an altar of stone. Now, an earthen altar, we'd have to assume, would be a temporary altar. That would fit well with the wilderness wanderings. They would move the tent or the tabernacle, the tent of worship, from one place to another as they went along. And it would make no sense to try to move stones with them. Rather, we would expect that they'd build an earthen altar everywhere they went, and they'd offer sacrifices on it. But things would be different when the house of worship found a permanent home. In that place, they would no doubt build a more permanent altar of stones. But notice that it could not be made of hewn stones or stones fashioned with tools. Why is that? Well, it's always important to remember that the altars were not to be the objects of worship. They were simply altars, reminding the people that it was God that was to be worshipped, not the altars. The altars were places of worship, never the objects of worship. Simplicity in the altars prevented Israel from making the mistake the pagans made. Don't build magnificent altars and then venerate them. Venerate God. That's the command. But notice also that there's another feature about the altars that they were to build. They were never to build steps on the altar. I mean, for one... You know, it's clear that when the altar required steps, it must be a very large one. And God was saying, don't build imposing altars. But there's another factor. See, we need to remember that in those days, people had robes and usually they wore no undergarments. It was possible to expose one's nakedness as one goes up the steps. 
And the great God of Israel demanded his people remain modest and discreet. You know, it's amazing to me how often religion and sensuality go together. Whether it was the deception of the Moabites who incited all Israel into a religious orgy, or the later Greco-Roman temples of worship that also housed temple prostitutes, or today's Hindu temples with pornographic depictions carved into the walls, or modern-day pastors who use their power to curry sexual escapades, sexual perversion has often gone with religion. Listen, the God of Israel demands that we fear him and that no such perversion ever be mixed with worship. Modern-day preachers who offend in this area should be afraid because we've already read in this text that if they deliberately keep on sinning, there is no sacrifice for sins left. Listen again. Modern-day preachers who offend in this area should be afraid of the eternal flames that await them should they offend God in this way, and it might yet be that they will not be given the grace of true repentance. We come to the end of Exodus 20, and we get a sense that we've seen the glory of the one true God, the God to be feared, the God to be loved, the God to be remembered, the God to be worshipped, the God whose glory fills heaven and earth, who is to be proclaimed to the very ends of the earth. And it is this God that Israel will be called upon to wrestle with as long as they exist. And today, it is that same one true God, the God of glory, that has given us his only son, who has gone to the altar to be sacrificed on our behalf. Glory be to God. This is the gospel. This is the great God that we serve. Let us never treat him as an ordinary thing. Let us rather fear his glory. Thanks, John, for your message for a great series. Let me conclude with this question. Help me understand fear in this context. Uh, I sense there's a movement that would suggest that we should not fear God. Yeah, I would say at the outset that anyone who does not fear God is a fool. Should we decide to fight with God? Uh, should we say, I will prevail against him if I go in the opposite direction that he desires for my life? Do I think that's going to end well? And I know there are people who don't even think about these matters, but the Bible constantly reminds us it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So we should fear him because he is altogether glorious, and we are not. Thanks again, John, and, and thanks for joining us today. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Many of us are well familiar with the words of Deuteronomy 31.6. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. But sometimes, our hardships can make God feel far. Well, this month, Back to the Bible Canada is offering a free booklet called Restored, A Story of Lives Made Full. It points to the book of Ruth and relates to how God moved one family from hunger to abundance, from bitterness to celebration. This booklet unravels the powerful and timeless lessons found in the story of Ruth that we can all learn from today. If your heart is in need of a refresh with the sustaining truths of God's faithfulness, then be sure to request your free copy today. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 
or visit backtothebible.ca.